0: Welcome. This is Michael Volkov, and this is episode 51 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is an interview of Pat Harnett, CEO of the Ethics and Compliance Initiative. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. Today's episode is sponsored by Tom Fox, who has just released a new comprehensive compliance book called The Compliance
1: Handbook. Thank you, Mike. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce the publication of my latest book, The Complete Compliance Handbook. This one-volume compendium provides you the most up-to-date advice on what constitutes a best practices compliance program. I bring together the top ideas, the top commentators, the top t- techniques, and topics that you can incorporate into your compliance program, literally in a 31-day format, to more fully operationalize your company's compliance regime. It incorporates the Department of Justice's 2017 evaluation of corporate compliance programs and information from the new FCPA Corporate Enforcement Policy. If you want one volume to guide you in operationalizing compliance, this is it. It's available starting May 21 on amazon.com. If you'd like an autographed copy, please order one from my website, www.fcpacompliancereport.com, and I will mail it to you. This is Tom Fox. I hope you will check it out. I know you will find it useful.
0: Thanks, Tom. Well, I was uh, really happy to arrange uh, Pat Harned's availability for an interview, Um, and if you follow the Ethics and Compliance Initiative, they've done a lot of interesting work with regard to the Blue Ribbon Panel, uh, and obviously the uh, National Bizi- Business Ethics uh, Survey, uh, which has been renamed, and Pat will explain that as well. So this is, a, I think, a very helpful interview. Pat is just a terrific uh, professional, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. I'm, I'm pleased to welcome Pat Harnett to the podcast Uh, Pat is the CEO of the Ethics and Compliance Initiative and is a well-known leader in the compliance profession. Uh, Just to give everybody a little background uh, before we introduce Pat, the mission of the ECI, or the Ethics and Compliance Initiative, is to empower organizations to build and sustain high-quality ethics and compliance programs. The ECI is an alliance of three nonprofit organizations, the Ethics Research Center the Ethics and Compliance Association, and the Ethics and Compliance Certification Institute. As CEO, Dr. Harned oversees all of the ECI strategy and operations. She also directs outreach efforts to policymakers and federal enforcement agencies in Washington, D.C., and she speaks and writes frequently as an expert on ethics in the workplace, corporate governance, and global integrity. Dr. Harned advises senior leaders on effective ways to build an ethical culture and promote integrity in organizational activities. Um, one of the issues we're going to end up talking about today, she also chaired the ECI's Blue Ribbon Panel, on high-quality ethics and compliance programs, which established a new industry standard for effective ethics and compliance efforts in organizations. She has served as a consultant to many leading uh, organizations, among them Penn State University, Daimler AG, and the New York Stock Exchange. Welcome, Pat. Thank you so much for your time today, and we're glad to have you here on this hot day in Washington, D.C.,
2: Well, thank you, Michael. I'm a big fan of your work. It's great to be able to join you for your podcast.
0: So tell, uh, Pat, give us a little bit more about, uh, tell us a little bit more about your work at the Ethics and Compliance Initiative. Uh, One thing that I always follow is the National Business Ethics uh, Survey that you, that your organization does, which I think is an incredible and valuable resource. But tell us a little bit more about some of the work that you're doing and the initiatives that you have going on.
2: Sure. Well, as as you described in reading my bio, the work of the ECI really falls into three major buckets if you will. The first is trying to do research to help business leaders and actually leaders across all different sectors to understand and identify the drivers of good conduct in their organizations. Um, And as you mentioned, the National Business Ethics Survey, which very recently we recast and rebranded as the Global Business Ethics Survey, is a big part of that. We, We use that research to both understand trends around ethics and compliance in different workplaces, but also to do research to try to help leaders figure out how do we actually promote the highest standard of conduct in our organizations. We also, as you mentioned, have a community of practitioners, ethics and compliance practitioners who are a part of our association. Um, And we host events throughout the year to try to help them compare best practice and also just explore some emerging issues that they wouldn't get exposure to otherwise in our industry. Um, And then the third piece of what we do is certification of practitioners to to help them demonstrate that they understand and have the skills to be able to build and sustain what we're calling a high-quality ethics and compliance program, which is essentially a highly effective ethics and compliance program.
0: Well, um, that's great. I, uh, I'm obviously familiar with all of the work of your organization, and I think it's just terrific. I love the fact that you sort of incorporate the practitioners mm-hmm. and work closely with them because I think they, you know, give sort of an invaluable perspective. And, for example, one of the areas that I know for a fact was just terrific and some of the work that you came out with was the uh, blue ribbon panel. And if you can explain that, and I know we I mentioned it, uh, the Blue Ribbon panel, and then you have some sort of exciting new uh, developments occurring there uh, in the next couple weeks as well.
2: Sure. Uh, we have found over time that um, really some of the harder questions that we wrestle with as an industry and the things that we try to take up in our research and resource development are really so much, we're so much better informed if we have advisory groups and groups of experts that are in-house in the trenches dealing with all of these issues to help us try to frame them. Um, and so actually about two years ago, we were challenged actually by a number of lawmakers who were thinking about revisions to the False Claims Act and revisions to FCPA, there was somewhat of a movement to try to think about if we were to allow for companies that have quote-unquote gold standard ethics and compliance programs to demonstrate that they've achieved that, could we give them mitigated penalties? Well, the thing they kept tripping up over was, Is it possible to define a gold standard ethics and compliance program? So they came to us and said, could you write a definition of a gold standard program? And in thinking about it, we ultimately decided that would probably take us all the rest of our lives to do. But it probably is important for us to start as an industry thinking about if a company goes beyond the minimum standard, which is a lot of what we talk about in our field, and a company really adopts a mindset and a framework and has an ethics and compliance program that goes well beyond the minimum standard, is it possible to identify some of the things that they have in place as really more of a, a, a guide, not a, a not a, guideline like federal sentencing guidelines, but at least a framework and a roadmap. So we put together a blue ribbon panel. It was a group of former enforcement officials, practitioners from ethics and compliance programs of organizations across a number of sectors and industries, and most importantly, different sized organizations some academics, um, and we challenged them to say, if a company has a high-quality program, what does that look like? What do they have in common? Um, And after about a year of talking about it and wrestling over it, they ultimately came up with five principles that Seem to be common to the way companies operate. And then, along with that, they identified a number of business objectives and even developed a really extensive list of some of the telltale leading practices and pitfalls to avoid for organizations that are interested in trying to raise the quality of their program. Um, So we put out that report. It's out. It's available to the public. Um, It's on our website, but it also lives in a number of different places now. It's called Principles and Practices of High Quality Ethics and Compliance Programs. Um, And we thought that it was, we got great feedback. It was a good document to help companies start to think about our Are we really trying to have a high quality program? Um, But actually, a number of practitioners thought more about that framework and said, you know, it would be very valuable if we could have a way to actually measure ourselves against this framework. So, over the last year, a group, a working group of our fellows, practitioners, and again, some former enforcement people, have been developing a measurement framework based on that idea of a high quality program. And the measurement framework, it will be coming out in probably the next two weeks or so from the ECI. It's an incredible document. It has a a maturity growth for for company programs, so five levels of maturity from a basic compliance program through to a high quality program, and by each principle, it has these five levels of maturity and metrics that companies can make use of to just look to see how are we doing in working towards the, a higher level of quality for our program. It's it's an exciting thing, and for us, um, we're just we're grateful that there were a number of practitioners that really wanted to wrestle with it and start to map it out.
0: Do you uh, And this will be available to people in the next few weeks on your website? Is that the hope so that people can? Yes. Okay.
2: Um, yes, and what we tend to do, Michael, is we send it out to, through our mailing list. We'll make it available to the public, so it'll be available on our website. We also reach out to find folks like you and hope that you'll help us to distribute it as well. Definitely. It's, it's meant to be uh, an offering to our industry, and then ECI will, hope we'll, on our end, will try to begin to convene practitioners to to take it to the next level after that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that would be a great sort of focus for a meeting where people, you know, the industry can get together and professionals can get together and sort of, you know, do presentations and, and get feedback and sort of start, you know, continue the dialogue Um, And I I hope that you guys can sort of, you know, get it out there and and have some meetings scheduled or something where people can do
2: that. Absolutely. I think, and it's always in our industry, and I think this is probably true for a lot of industries, it's always a challenge to keep from something like that from becoming the be-all and end-all. If you've done these things, you have a magnificent program, check the box kind of approach. Um, and that was actually the the intent of the Blue Ribbon Panel. They wanted everything to be driven by five principles because those principles end up driving the way you do your work. Um, and so the challenge with this measurement framework now will be for us to find a way for it to be an industry-driven um, effort to Raise the level of practice and be able to make use of the framework without it becoming a standard in the way that um, companies feel like they have to live up to Sarbanes-Oxley or federal sentencing guidelines or, you know, so many other regulatory frameworks out there.
0: And the the, the reason this is important also from my perspective, Pat, is that, you know, I often get calls from clients who say, Um, you know, we want to do this, or this is, we want to measure this, or we want to take stock of our program. Um, You know, can you, they want to know what other people are doing. They're always asking, you know, what, where do we fall in the benchmarking process and whatever. And I always say that that's really just program anxiety in the sense of, you know, if we had some common principles that people can measure themselves and gain some confidence, then it really doesn't matter if their competitor or somebody else has a different, let's say, way of approaching a particular issue or allocates their resources differently or anything like that. To me, this is. You know, sort of an iterative process, uh, you know, in the sense that you guys are putting out something that's very valuable. And and I bet you what will happen is over the years, you'll develop it even more, you know, from feedback and sort of what people are doing.
2: I think I agree and that's that's what I'm hoping will happen. We did find when we released the initial Blue Urban panel report, some people loved it, some people hated it, and frankly all of the feedback was really valuable to us. Uh, right. because it's not really it's we're only as good as an industry as our ability to help both the companies that are really great at and well resourced with their ethics and compliance programs and the ones that are not and the ones that really struggle with even just making the basic argument in their organization that ethics matters and that's where i i hope that what eci has been adding to the field has been both the research that helps to make the case that this stuff really does make a difference and from a business perspective has an excellent payoff, but also providing enough resources to help organizations have something to go by and yet still be able to make it make sense in their own context. And that's what I think is such a challenge about our field. It's not like um, rocket science where there are certain laws of physics and certain mathematical things that are truisms that you don't waver from, ethics and compliance is human behavior, and it's messy, <laughs> Yeah, exactly.
0: exactly. One story is I was sitting there with a potential client, a chief compliance officer, and I said, come on, you know, we all know this is not rocket science. And he goes, that's a great way of saying it, Mike. He says, do you know what my job was before as a chief compliance officer? I said, what? He said, oh, I was a rocket scientist. So <laughs> I said, let me take my foot out of my mouth and let's continue you know, the conversation. But um, so here, one of the things, um, and this is really int- actually, the timing is perfect in terms of us talking is uh, I had a very large global company, uh, chief compliance officer ask me for can you, you know, give me some materials to, you know, sort of justify what we do and the importance of this and what, you know, I'm trying to, you know, get resources and support from senior management. And what I sent them was actually uh, the results from your global business ethics survey. And I think that it is probably, to me, the sort of preeminent type of work that's going on uh, to to in this area. And so I wanted you to take just a moment, if you could. I know there were two installments, and mm-hmm. uh, you just released the second installment. But I, I want to, first off, thank you all for your effort, because it actually helped me with the client. So I appreciate that. And uh, it, it was very valuable to the client. So
2: well, thank well first of all, thank you. It brings tears to my eyes when I hear that people are able to make use of these reports, especially in-house when they're just having a, a difficult time getting the resources that they need. It's it's always affirming to us to know that these these studies we're doing are, are very useful. Um as as you said, the Global Business Ethics Survey is actually, so I said a couple of minutes ago, we just rebranded it. It began in 1994 as the National Business Ethics Survey, and that's simply because for quite a long time, we worked only with data from U- employees across the United States. And um, in 2016, we had actually been challenged for quite a while to figure out how to make the study global because so many companies are dealing in with employees across different cultural and country contexts. So we finally expanded the study and that's why we've now referred to it as the GBES. The big thing for us this year is that we have begun to issue reports quarterly where in the past, we only fielded the survey every other year and then released one big report We're finding now that if we collect data annually, make it a little bit of a smaller study and issue reports quarterly, it helps us just keep the conversation going, but makes it more manageable for us, um, but also makes it a little more relevant. So we have now released the first two reports for this year. Um, The first one was purely an update on trends, and that has been by far probably the longest standing contribution of this study where we just report on how how much are employees observing wrongdoing? Are they reporting it? Are they feeling pressure to compromise standards? What's the state of retaliation in workplaces? And it had been a little while since we had done that update. So, um, and, and we were able to sort of offer a good news, bad news, worse news picture because, on the one hand, for the first time in quite a while, we were finding that fewer employees are actually observing what they consider to be misconduct in their workplace that had come to near historic lows, and and at the same time, employees are far more willing to report the wrongdoing that they had observed, but the bad news was that um when employees were coming forward to report wrongdoing, more of them were experiencing retaliation for having done so than we've ever seen in the history of the study. And for us, we've known over the years that when you see retaliation rates rising, especially to alarming levels, that's not a good sign for what's ahead. Um, And the last piece of that was The other thing that troubled us was that we are not seeing a lot of progress when it comes to organizations really systematically focusing on strengthening their workplace cultures. So taken together, the extent to which people are, even though misconduct is down and that's great and reporting is up and that's even better, the fact that employees are either experiencing retaliation or are afraid to come forward, and the fact that they're saying they're not working in strong ethical cultures, tells us that things will probably change in the not too distant future. Um, so that first report, and maybe I'll pause and see Michael if you have any questions about that. But it's it was sort of the forecast, the, the state of ethics, and a little bit of a forecast going forward.
0: Yeah, I um, the, I found it fascinating. And the, the other part about the retaliation that was really troubling to me was the finding that you made that many of the retaliation incidents occur within the first three weeks mm-hmm. uh, after the report is made by the employee, which means that this isn't something that's subtle and you know takes time for them to carry out, but that it's almost immediate, you know, quickly in response to anybody raising concerns, and that to me was really troubling. I, I be- there was obviously a lot of good news in the report, but I share your concern in terms. I mean, right. once you once you stop that, uh, the 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 trust and the integrity. Uh, of the organization and the ability of people to connect with leadership and employees to is just really uh you know jeopardized
2: agreed and i also we all know that so many companies worry a great deal about retaliation they are, they have developed careful investigations processes to be fair to all parties involved but that finding I mean, in most companies, they're just getting started with the investigation process, mm-hmm. and the retaliation has already happened. And that is what's really unfortunate. It, it, it's, We've had lots of conversations with folks about, so what is the implication? Well, sadly, the implication is that when somebody first comes forward to report, you almost have to prepare them for the fact that you are going to do everything you can as quickly as you can, but it's possible that they may, if there are going to be ramifications, it will happen very quickly.
0: Wow, that's yeah. so. Anyway, so that's the first installment. Now, then, right. just and which, by the way, is was terrific. Uh, and now, what what has recently been released as the sort of second installment
2: in this. The, The second report took a very different turn, um, and it, it was driven by the fact that for all these years when we do these studies, we almost always in our reports show that an ethics and compliance program makes a difference. And it does. It is absolutely the case. That hasn't changed with this report. But as we have, um, especially because we had convened a blue ribbon panel two years ago that talked about program quality, we had this working group that was starting to define levels of maturity of an ethics and compliance program. It made us start to think that all these years when when ECI has looked at the impact of a program, we too have operated with the assumption that an ethics and compliance program is basically a program that is a compliance program. It's in accordance with all relevant laws and regulations. With our studies, we've generally operated with a definition based on sentencing guidelines and some other prominent frameworks. But we'd never really looked at does the quality of the program actually make a difference? Is more better or does it not really matter? Because honestly, if we had found all you need to do is have a code and the basic elements as defined in sentencing guidelines, we could save a lot of people a lot of time and energy and money. Um, so we, we, when we did this last data collection, we asked employees not only about their perception that there's an ethics and compliance program in their organization, but we asked them about the quality of that program. And we, we asked it in ways not, we didn't ask that outright because most employees wouldn't really have a good answer to that question, but we asked them about the extent to which the program is, is getting used and their, their ideas about um, how that program is impacting their their organization and its culture. And we basically took the Blue Urban panel report and asked employees questions about things that you would expect employees to be able to say if a high quality program is in place. And frankly, the results were stunning. Uh, I in quarter report that we just released a couple weeks ago basically said that when an organization has an ethics and compliance program, even a minimum standard program, which was the definition we we offered there for clarity, it does make a difference. Everything you do with an ethics and compliance program helps to encourage good conduct in your organization and mitigate your compliant noncompliance risks. But when you have a high-quality program, the results are substantially better. So just two quick examples. Um, In an organization with a high quality ethics and compliance programs, employees are 132% more likely to report wrongdoing to management when they observe it than when you have just a minimum standard program. Um, We also know that A good metric for whether employees will report again is whether they're satisfied with the organization's response, the the process by which they reported. Um, And in high-quality programs, employees are 270% more satisfied with the the response to their reporting experience than if in an organization with a minimum standard program. There are actually about 40 different outcomes that we identified that are favorably um, impacted by a, a high quality program, and the percentages are all in that report. It's really an amazing thing
0: so I, I mean this uh, these are incredible findings from my perspective, and something that every compliance professional can use to you know, promote their work and educate the board, educate senior management about the value of the investment that they make in compliance. And 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 that sort of leads me to, to another question, Pat. And, you know, given, you know, you and I both work with compliance professionals and I am often asked about, okay, what can I do to persuade my board? What can I do to persuade my CEO who may not you know understand all the implications of ethics and compliance. but um, from your perspective and obviously using the work that you all are producing, what are what are some of the keys you think in terms of communicating and how to get this message across internally within a company uh, to support the compliance and ethics function?
2: It's a great question, and certainly um, I, I, I get asked it a fair amount too, Michael. I do yeah. think, you know, a lot of organizations, they tend to think in terms of the last big crisis that they've seen in the news. So, you know, as long if and, and I do think that it, it becomes part of the argument of, our industry to say, well, unless we have an ethics and compliance program, we too could be the next company that has to pay millions of dollars in fines and have deferred prosecution agreements and, you know, monitors all over the place. And so we just don't want to be that company. Therefore, we need to have an ENC program. And that's a, I mean, it is a compelling argument and it is absolutely true. I think one of the things that, um, I'm particularly proud of this last report that we put out because it gives some numbers to people who can make use of it. Um, it it makes the case for ethics and compliance not just about we're going to save money and stay out of trouble. We're going to save money in fines, but it also looks to the perceptions of your employees, their loyalty to the organization. Their satisfaction with their working experience, their intent to stay, um, and I know that those are all sort of softer measures. But but I, it's been my experience, particularly with boards and C-suite leaders, that they they do they do want to see the bottom line. But ethics and compliance, other than cost savings, you know, it's very difficult to make that connection. But there is certainly an understanding that a happy workforce a workforce that intends to stay for more than five years, the willingness of employees to come forward and raise problems so that we are staying out of um, major trouble, those are also compelling arguments as well. and so i so I suspect that the more we can continue to quantify that so that ethics and compliance practitioners can bring that forward the better off we're going to be. And that's that's part of why we wrote this report the way we did.
0: Yeah, I think, um, and just my own two cents in this, and I, I write about this often and speak about it often, is that uh, there is research, and obviously we need more, but there is research that shows that ethical, or let's say companies with high-quality ethics and compliance programs uh, are uh, financially do better over the long run, and and I think that because of that finding, I I, tr- I try to tell compliance professionals change your message messaging from we're going to stay out of trouble to do you want to make more money, okay? Do you want to increase profitability and sustainability? Because every factor that you just identified directly improves the overall financial performance it doesn't guarantee profitability but it means that you make more money than you might otherwise make and over a longer period of time as you described you have less employee turnover and so i always advocate for that and i i i wonder why that message doesn't get embraced um, by senior management and, and the board. Although uh, one thing that I was uh, intrigued by was recently, I saw a survey result uh, that was put out that showed that boards are spending more time on training. They're, they're actually getting trained more, which I think is good. They're trying to learn more about ethics and compliance. And I like that. But, you know, I don't know why there's that Sort of disconnect in in terms of what you're talking about, and it it seems like an educational function more than anything.
2: I I think you're right. I also my sense is, and be interested in your thoughts about this too. But my sense is that especially now that we have such a social media-driven world Mm -hmm. and um, such a heightened ability of the media to bring attention to a company's problems, that there is now a greater awareness by boards um, in particular of their vulnerability to even just a rogue employee or um, a problem that doesn't get mitigated quick enough, and and in that sense, there's a real opportunity for ethics and compliance practitioners to be able to say one of the value one of the values of the ENC program is it increases the likelihood that if we have anybody like that in our organization we're going to know about it we're going to be able to intervene in that situation um, and I, I agree with you completely. You can look at companies that we know have had a long standing reputation of Investing in their program have have very strong ethics and compliance programs, and financially they do outperform their competitors. The problem, if you only lean on that argument, is that there are lots of things that impact the bottom line for a company. Right. We don't want ethics and compliance to get thrown out if something changes in the marketplace or um, in in investments or you know lots of other things that impact business performance. So it's kind of, it's a double-edged, it's, there's two sides to the equation. There's both the fact that it does help to build consumer confidence. It does, we're living in a world where people are much more willing to do business with a company that has a reputation for integrity than one that's just been in trouble. Um, But I also do think that that argument for a more productive, happier workplace that's more engaged, where people will stay, um, but also the ability to, and this we are able to demonstrate with numbers, the, the willingness of employees to solve problems, to report wrongdoing. That's a very compelling argument, not only for a program, but I'm hoping increasingly for us to start to be able to make the case to business leaders great that we have a program we've got to increase its quality put more resources into this because it really is going to make a difference
0: yeah that you know pat you make a great point at the uh, there about the financial performance we don't want to link ourselves to profitability and it's a hard argument to make that hey we're making more money than we otherwise would cuz even if we're losing money that doesn't really help to solve much of our sort of persuasion problem. Um, And you're right. We could be compliance. People could be held accountable more for financial performance. So it's a two edged sword in that, in that sense. That's a great point. Well, listen, this is great. Actually, I I know, and I I truly mean this. We could, I probably have another hour's worth of topics uh, and I love uh, listening to your views, but I have to ask you one last question, which, um, You know, given your career and your sort of, um, you know, long commitment to the compliance profession, what do you see uh, going forward because – Um, you know, there's no profession that's hotter now in the marketplace. There's no profession in the last 10 years that has sort of risen so much as the compliance profession. And I have sort of more colleagues and lawyers who are sort of leaving quote unquote legal professions and wanting to get into compliance. But what do you see for the profession going forward? And what do you see some of the accomplishments and some of the challenges?
2: That's a great question. Um, A couple things come to mind. Um, One of the things that I think is already starting to happen and will continue to happen over the next couple of years is the wave of retirements at the highest levels of ethics and compliance programs. Um, A number of chief ethics and compliance officers or the equivalent that have been in the field for a long time who came into it usually from some other function and in, was blessed with the ethics responsibility, um, they're getting ready to retire. They're moving into the next chapter of their lives. And I think we're go- about to see a change in the way the next generation of chief ethics and compliance officers lead their programs. That's a good thing, but it's also a challenging thing and an unknown thing because I don't think, like a lot of other professions, are. Our field is young enough that we've, in my opinion, not done enough to really prepare for the succession of our ethics and compliance programs. And so how companies choose their next leaders, it's going to be really telling for our industry. Um, Another thing that I'm starting to see a great deal of discussion around is the use of analytics Um, in companies in general, big data, and what are the ethics of what we can and should be doing, but the use of analytics and ethics and compliance, too. So, the development of metrics to see, can we begin to monitor our workplace and identify when we are higher or lower risk for compliance problems? And that's a very promising field, but it also, as we know now from privacy and security issues. And, you know, it's, it's fraught with lots of ethics questions that are going to have to be answered as we tackle that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I, I wouldn't be surprised to see ethics and compliance programs staffed with analysts as much as it is people in with training and investigations expertise. So as a field, we're in a really interesting time of change, I think, um, Certainly, we could talk all day. Another podcast topic is what's happening on the enforcement front, both um in the u s but also in other countries it's It's been exciting to see exciting and troubling to see other companies building up their own countries, not companies um, coming up with their own approach to enforcement of some prominent issues that companies deal with and I think that is also just always going to be a challenge for us. Um, and then finally, to add one more to the list, the evergreen topic of generational differences and the the fact that the next generation of employees is even more different from millennials that we've been talking about for quite a while. And And again, to go back to my original thought, as leadership begins to change, so too will the way we work, so lots lots of work for us to do.
0: Well, you and see. I can
2: never retire.
0: Right. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> the, 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 I'm already getting scared by that fact. So, uh, <laughs> but Pat, uh, you know what? Thank you so much. This has been just uh, terrific and really a, a fascinating discussion. And I, I appreciate your time. Um, tell me, just uh, if people want to reach the ECI, reach you. Um, what's the best way to make contact with you and, uh, and, and your group? Because I know there's a, there are a lot of great resources and, and support that you all provide.
2: Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I'll make it real simple. If Folks, just go to our website, ethics.org. On that website, you can find contact information for our office, and you can reach me and just about anybody else at the ECI that you would want to reach.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you again. Best of luck in in your work and leadership of the ECI and keep up the great work. We appreciate it.
2: Well, thanks for the opportunity. It's always great to talk with you.
0: Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.bolcoxlaw.com. Our award-winning blog, Corruption, Common, and Compliance, is new You can contact me at my email address, www.unho.com.